นโมทัสสะภะคะวะทัวรหัตโตสัมมาสัมบุทัสสะนโมทัสสะภะคะวะทัวรหัตโตสัมมาสัมบุทัสสะนโมทัสสะภะคะวะทัวรหัตโตสัมมาสัมบุทัสสะพุทธังดมังสังฆังนมัสสะ
don't overly project onto individuality. I'm very convinced this is why monasteries do tend to last and and I do feel that uh, why people come and want to stay in places like this is because they they sense something, they see something uh, that perhaps they don't see evident everywhere, the willingness to cooperate and to put the uh, preferences for getting my way to one side and to uh, operate on a level that is cooperative. And, and the ability to do that takes training. And uh, I think it's something very relevant and very real, I would suggest, that a community, even a small community like this, in our own small way, uh, I like to think it about something we can contribute to the society that we're a part of. And it's not because we're all scintillating uh, individuals, and it's because we share something that values realization beyond attachment to individuality, beyond uh, beyond deluded personality. So. When I contemplate what is it that brings about disharmony and discord and disappointment, it always comes down to, nearly always comes down to this overvaluing of personality. The commitment to me and my way gets in the way of the possibility of cooperation and harmony. This is worth taking note of, we can really be interested and keen and contributing to harmony and happiness in in our own small group or in our family or in the world, but feel frustrated and not feeling confident about how to do it. Well, if we can identify at least one of the causes as deluded personality, if we can see that, well, then we can do some work on that, we can look into that, we can investigate that and see what sort of commitment do I have to this perception of me? Yeah, what sort of commitment? How do I hold that experience of selfhood? Now, it's not the perception of selfhood, it's not the personality per se that's the problem. It's what we invest in it is what we project onto it. You know, everybody needs a sense of individuality. If we don't, well, then we need somebody else to take care of us. We all need to know that we have individual responsibility. We are going to reap the consequences of the choices that we make, and we do need to uh, be very alert to that, you know, really conscious to the fact that there is such a thing as individual karma and that we will reap the consequences of our actions of body, speech and mind, that's, that's necessary and uh, growing up it takes a lot of effort to develop a, a good enough sense of individuality, a good enough personality. Mm. Now, the personality per se, the sense of individuality in itself is not the problem. Yeah. It's like with food. Food is not the problem, but if we eat too much, it becomes a problem. Or we eat the wrong kind of food. Food can become a problem, but it's not food that's the problem. Or cars. 
cars are very convenient and uh, if we didn't have cars then probably most of you wouldn't be here and uh, cars are very beneficial for all sorts of reasons and and uh, but cars kill a lot of people but we can't blame the cars it's the way cars are driven and with personality it's not personality it's not the sense of individuality it's not the sense of me that's the problem it's what we invest in it. It's how we understand it. Remember the Buddha's teachings, the Eightfold Path begins with right understanding. All the other factors are only right if there's right understanding, there's a right view. If we perceive, if our perception, if our view, if our way of seeing accords with what's real, with what's true, no problem. But when our way of seeing, if our way of perceiving does not accord with what's real, that's a source of problem. So this applies to personality. If we overinvest in this perception of me, in other words, we cling to it, if we don't know there's a context in which this sense of me is arising and ceasing, if we don't know that the sense of individuality is not ultimate, then we find our soul identity in the sense of me. Awareness contracts desperately around this perception, this body-mind perception of me, this body-mind perception of self, of individuality, becomes our sole source of security, our identity. And that creates a problem. Individually, because we're always burnishing and promoting and defending this precious configuration of consciousness it's all important we believe that it warrants all this investment of energy and then socially it becomes obstructive cooperative relationship but it doesn't take a lot of consideration to see that being completely invested in personality and individuality is a recipe for disaster. It just can't work. We can't all be number one. We can't all get on the bus at the same time. You know, trying to get in the door at the same time creates a problem. So we have queues. Uh, cooperative society is where people recognise the importance of agreeing to this, the inevitability of having to wait. We can't all get through that narrow doorway and get on a bus at the same time or get on a plane at the same time. It's just not possible. And, and it's a fortunate society that arrives at that agreement. And, yeah. Not all societies have it and hasn't always been there. And fortunately, this society does have it. And when Ajahn Chah was visiting this country, he commented actually on, on how impressed he was with the way the British people were willing to cue how orderly they were and commented that he thought this was particularly conducive with Dhamma practice. That, and I, would, I didn't ask him what he meant by that, but I assume he was meaning that there's a willingness, evident willingness, for people to accept that sometimes you have to wait. You can't all be number one. You can't all be first. You can't all be the winner. Mm. Standing in line waiting to get on a bus, standing in line at the supermarket, 
We can't all go through the checkout at the same time. So even on the level of everyday social interaction, being completely identified with the sense of me, the sense of my personality, is a disaster. So it's not the perception of personality per se that's the problem. It's what we invest in it. and It brings about disharmony, leads to discord and disappointment. And that's worth noticing. Because then we notice that, then we can do something about it. So what do we do about it? What can we do about it? Well, fortunately, we have all sorts of teachings. We have a wealth of teachings and, and good examples. And that in itself is, is good fortune. And not everybody has such ready access to, to such effective teachings and opportunities to train and practicing these teachings and opportunities to apply effort to really contemplate what works and what doesn't work. And for many people they're in survival mode, just getting by, just coping. And that's uh, that's unfortunate. For human beings there's also this possibility to develop consciousness to cultivate our action of body, speech and mind so that it contributes to that which is truly beautiful, truly beneficial for oneself and for others. You know, harmonious, cooperative community is a wonderful thing. You know, when you're part of a cooperative community, it's like, it's like playing music with people who really know their instrument and really know how to listen to each other. When you get a group of you know, three or four musicians who are really competent in playing their instrument and able to attend to each other, even if they're just jamming, even if they haven't got a tune, they're just jamming, sometimes it can produce something you know, exquisitely beautiful. It just happens because of that level of competence and that willingness and ability to attend to each other. So the willingness and ability to uh, lay aside a commitment to deluded personality uh, and cooperate uh, can produce uh, great beauty uh, in, for oneself and joy and happiness for oneself and likewise benefit and beauty on the level of our interaction and society. I've often spoken about the skillful use and cultivation of what I refer to as the soft powers of the spiritual life. I speak about them so often because it's not always obvious how powerful and important they are. The soft powers of, for instance, gentleness, uh, patience, humility. Those words, if you compare those words and the feeling that they conjure up, with 
the feelings that associated with attaining, conquering, mm-hmm. striving, yeah, are very, very different. Mm-hmm. Those words appeal to a different part of our brain and resonate in a different way in our hearts. And if we don't have patience, well, all we have is impatience, and that's uh, that's unfortunate. I mean, some things, it just takes time to grow. You know, like if you're a parent and your child is two years old, well, I mean, that's, that's not the ideal age, generally, from what I'm told. You know. and sometimes, you know, that stage of development, children are learning to say no, and they transit that stage of development, hopefully in a good enough way, and they're allowed to learn to say no, and as a result, they develop a good enough ability to set boundaries and look after themselves in their later life. And it's important that they go through it, but one probably doesn't want them to stay stuck at the age of two. Hmm. But when they're there, that's the stage they're going through, and we need to allow them you know, to go through that stage. And, you know, if we're impatient, we don't allow them, and you can cause harm. Cause harm to others, cause harm to ourselves. We're not patient with our own limitation. Or there's no appreciation of humility. All we have is hubris. And then if all there is in society is hubris, then everybody's a variation on Icarus. And that's kind of how it is in many situations. Everybody's burning out or numbed out on medication to avoid getting burnt out. So an appreciation for the potential of these soft powers is really important. If we don't have that recognition, well, then we can miss out. Another one of those soft powers that particularly if we're contemplating what contributes to harmonious community, is uh, the ability to trust, trusting. The hard power equivalent of trusting, I would suggest, is compulsive controlling. Compulsive controlling is, in fact, the habitual activity of the deluded personality. It gets off on controlling, but it's so exhausting. Compulsively controlling and strategizing life. It means you can't relax. Mm. So appreciating the function of these soft powers and are not immediately obvious and but it is important, like presently in the evident increase in chaos in our world, it's, uh, it's not necessarily the case that there's wars going on everywhere, but there is uh, a uh, very heightened level of, of collective anxiety around. There's a lot of stress. Yeah. Yeah. 
operating on the basis of distrust, coming from a place of compulsive controlling, is very stress-inducing. Not just exhausting, but it obstructs creativity. It obstructs ease. And as a result, there is an understandable build-up of stress and unhelpful tension. Tension can be creative, tension can be constructive, but when there isn't a sense of ease and ability, as well as balanced tension, then it can tip over into stress, and and that, again, is a cause for disharmony and disappointment. So, coming to consciously appreciate the ability to live in a trusting way. If all we have is controlling, if that's what we our main motivating force, that's what we feel like, and it is true for many of us a lot of the time, then it's wise to bring that up into awareness and to take a close look at it and make this a priority, to get interested, to wanting to learn. How can I learn to be more trusting? The intentional cultivation of this faculty is important. We only have limited time, we only have limited energy. What are we going to do with it? How are we going to invest our time and energy in this life? And if all our time and energy goes into controlling, compulsively controlling, I'm not talking about letting go of all control and dropping into a hippie-style whatever, that's not functional. It's the compulsive controlling that is rooted in fear, the fear of being seen for being false. If we are committed to our deluded personality, on some level we know that we're being false. On some level... We know that there's there's more to reality. We know we're not all there is to all of existence. We know that other people do exist. But being self-centered, it is as if we're getting around thinking that we're the only thing that really matters in life. Now, of course, we don't really believe that, but sadly, we can somehow slip into uh, uh, acting as if that's the case. And so if we are, unfortunately committed to that view that this personality, me and my way, is what really matters in life, then we are always living in a a sort of state of fear of being shown up. And that also is exhausting. So we get interested in how can we be free from distrusting and realize a way of living in a more trusting mode. Well, traditionally there's, well, there's many ways, but traditionally there are two distinct approaches to cultivating any virtue. 
One is to see the disadvantage in the absence of that virtue and two is to see the advantage in the presence of that virtue. And, and this is something that's helpful to, to uh, commit to memory that any particular quality of heart or mind or behaviour, body and speech that we would like to cultivate. One, first we consider the disadvantage in the absence of and then we consider, we imagine the advantage in the presence of that. We're talking about patience. We can consider the disadvantage in the absence of patience and see for oneself and for others how obstructive and unfortunate that is. And then we can consider, we can imagine, the, well, how good it would be in the advantage, in the advantage you could gain in the presence of patience and and then if we start to perhaps experience a little bit of benefit, well, then we dwell on that. Say, look, that's what that feels like. You know? So this is always worth applying in any virtue that we want to cultivate. So in the, the case of considering how can we cultivate the ability to live with a trusting heart, you know, with a trusting mind, rather than always turning to distrust, exhausting ourselves with manipulating conditions and trying to make sure everybody likes me and approves of me and nobody's going to reject me. If we'd like to grow out of that, we contemplate the disadvantage. And here we we can think about it, but also what's more important is feeling. What does it feel like? What does living with distrust feel like? And that really gives us the impression. That's the disadvantage. Oh, yeah. Yeah. these days we have a very um, reliable monastery car uh, thanks to the monastery trustees they agree to provide a uh, lease hire vehicle and it's always reliable uh, but I can remember what it was like when we had these second hand old unreliable vehicles and you never knew whether it was going to start or not. Yeah. I was in Samita's coming to visit. We've got to go and pick him up at the train station where you can't be sure the car's even going to work. You know, even if it does work and gets you in there, you can't be sure it's going to get you back again. You can't trust the vehicle to do what you wanted it to do to get you there. That really doesn't feel good. It's like a piece of equipment or a tool that we... Is not trustworthy. We know what that feels like. You know, or likewise, you know, a friend. If we want a friend who's really trustworthy, but we don't have one. We don't have anybody that we can really turn to and know who's got our back. And know that through thick or thin we've they've got our back. We don't have anybody we can turn to and just confide in the struggle that maybe we're going through and how regrettable that is, distrusting people. And then conversely, you know, having the reliable vehicle that you know is always a really good VW, reliable piece of kit that it's just going to do what it's supposed to do and grateful to the trustees for making it available and really makes things a lot easier. How good that feels to have something we can rely on and trust in 
our trustworthy friend. Well, lovely that is, how really lovely it is. You've got somebody that you know, you can just turn to them any time and tell them anything and they're not going to judge you, they're not going to reject you, they're there for you. And how fortunate that is. Well, in this case, we're contemplating trusting on the level of the heart. Most essential, we learn to trust ourselves. As the Buddha said in that often quoted verse, in the Pali, it is Atahi Atano Natoro Kohi Natoro Parosiya. You are your own refuge. How could another be your refuge? Learning to trust in yourself. Now here, of course, we're not talking about trusting the deluded personality self. We don't have to think about that too much. On some level, we just know what that means, how to trust in yourself. In fact, we think about it too much, we're likely to get confused. Learning to trust in ourselves, learning to trust in trust, it can take a long time. We can apply this approach that the Buddha gave us, seeing the disadvantage and the absence of a particular quality, the advantage and the presence of that quality and uh, we can have confidence in that possibility, that approach and to some degree see it but still that doesn't mean to say that self-doubt disappears. Self-doubt can persist for a very long time. Or impatience, if we've invested in impatience and greed and ambition and becoming that aspect of our personality has been central to our character for a long time we may apply the Buddha's teachings and seeing the disadvantage in the absence and the advantage in the presence but that doesn't mean to say that we suddenly become patient trusting and our ability to trust for instance can take a very long time we have commitment to manipulating to controlling can stay there but we can reflect on it we can keep reflecting on it we can get more and more interested in it every time we witness disharmony and discontentment inwardly within ourselves and within our inner emotional household the disharmony that can, might exist there or the disharmony that can exist outwardly in the community we're a part of or the society we're a part of. Every time we witness this, what's wise and what's possible for all of us is to engage that. We can't avoid, not really, we can't ever avoid disappointment or disharmony. We're going to keep encountering it all of our lives and so the wise thing to do uh, the sensible thing to do is to find a way of embracing it again as we've heard so many times before it's mindfulness of suffering the Buddha taught is what leads to freedom from suffering so here we are we have this this suffering and disharmony globally or locally or individually 
where this is harmony. Uh, uh, how can we trust, how can we learn to trust in our ability to find our way through that? Yeah. Not to despair because we can't immediately change it. It's understandable that we want to change it. Perfectly understandable that we want to change it. But if we demand that it change, we sadly just contribute to more stress, more disappointment. So is there a way of wanting to change the world, wanting to change our community, wanting to change ourselves? Is there a way of wanting without demanding? Well, we hear the Buddha's teachings, we reflect on this, we look inwardly and and see that, well, yeah, this this wanting, sometimes uh, we can let go of wanting without wanting disappearing. There's a way of there's a way of relating to wanting without demanding. We experiment, we can get to see how that's a possibility, a realistic possibility. We can want somebody to be happy without demanding they can be happy. I was talking to a a woman recently who was describing how it was when she had her first child and, and the love that she felt for her child. And she, she described how she knew when she looked at her child that she'd just uh, given birth to, and she couldn't stop loving this being. And she knew that whatever this being did wouldn't make any difference. The love that she felt for this being was unconditional, was selfless love. So if we have any intuition or any experience or any appreciation of that possibility, we can choose to trust in it. Our our habits of compulsive controlling and strategizing could mean that we default to distrusting. That's a possibility. But we can also, we have this choice, we can invest in learning how to trust, learning how to cultivate these possibilities. Somebody else was mentioning to me recently how they were aware of the fault-finding in their own mind and and how rather frustrating it was that the mind just always turned towards finding what's lacking and what's missing and what's wrong. And what can you actually do about that condition? So I suggest that what you can actually do about it is determine for the next three months, at the end of every day, you write down ten things that you feel grateful for. Gratitude, gratitude gives rise to contentment. Contentment contributes to ease. Ease contributes to relaxation. Relaxation contributes to understanding, to insight, to letting go, to better fit for oneself and others. So there's a simple, uh, obvious logic there. Gratitude is a virtue worth cultivating, but it's not something we can imitate necessarily and immediately realize overnight, but we can choose to trust in it. We can trust in the possibility of the unfolding of our practice, the unfolding of the way, the manifesting 
of the way. And her, so we invest in this. And so three months, every day, at the end of the day, maybe it's the same thing. Maybe your mind's not very creative, or maybe if you're really depressed, you can only just manage to kind of find ten things. So, you know, well, at least I'm not quadriplegic, and you know, my parents were actually, relatively speaking, pretty good, and at least I live in a country that's governed by the rule of law. And you know, anybody, however depressed and unhappy and disappointed they might be, can come up with ten things. But even, it doesn't matter, even if every day for three months we still write down the same ten things we feel grateful for. Almost certainly, at some stage, we'll find something different, something new, something more, because there is so much uh, that we can feel grateful for. And once we see that, we say, all right, this works. This is what works. What doesn't work is not making effort. What does work is making effort to learn to trust in the possibility of the way. Yeah. Trusting is something that does make a difference and is really worth cultivating. Thank you very much this evening for your <coughs> attention. Can I, uh,